Calvin Coolidge once wrote that politics are not an end but a means. Not a product, but a process. Politics, he wrote, is the art of government and the indicator of every government's foundational priorities. I've come to appreciate that description of politics largely because of the way in which it frames politics not so much as a platform but as a narrative. And a powerful enough narrative to impact and perhaps even define not only a person's relationship to government but a person's approach to the world. Politics is not an end but a means. Not a product but a process. One of the many things that I love about Jesus is that he never shied away from talking politics. In fact, most of Jesus' ministry was focused upon a political reality, specifically the political reality known as the kingdom of God, often described in scripture as the kingdom of heaven. And that Jesus would describe it as a kingdom, make no mistake about this, that Jesus would describe it as a kingdom, which he most certainly did, is in and of itself a political statement of sorts. Because to give one's primary allegiance to the kingdom of God, which is exactly what Jesus was inviting people to do, to give one's primary allegiance to the kingdom of God means taking that primary allegiance away from some other Caesar, some other kingdom, some other government. A 10th grader in a youth group that I was once leading voiced a question as we were all catching our breath following a volleyball game. I've been meaning to ask since last Sunday's Bible study, what did Jesus mean by the kingdom of God since he uses that phrase so much? And as I was doing my best to formulate a response to an unanticipated theological question, someone else in the youth group spoke up, oh, I think that's where you go when you die. To which the president of the youth group, a high school senior, responded, no, I think you're thinking of heaven. The kingdom of God is right now, she said, to which the 10th grader responded, what do you mean the kingdom of God is right now? Well, she said, this is just my way of thinking about it, but I think that Jesus called it the kingdom of God because it's what happens whenever people take Jesus seriously enough for his politics to become a real thing. That was her way of describing it. And I was so grateful for her response in that conversation, first because it was better than anything that I was going to come up with, And second, because with her own unique vocabulary, succinct, crisp, she was helping all of us, myself included, to understand some things about this political reality known as the kingdom of God. She was helping us to understand that the kingdom of God is not a geographical realm, although it most certainly covers geography and a good bit of it. She was helping us to understand that the kingdom of God is not an institution, although institutions like church, when they're at their best, let me add that, can be a part of that kingdom. And she was also helping us to understand, if I might borrow her perfect language, she was also helping us to understand that the kingdom of God is right now. 
It's what happens whenever people take Jesus seriously enough to make his politics, his way of doing things, his priorities, a real thing, an incarnated thing. Theologian Dolores Williams puts it this way, the kingdom of God is not something that we have to die to experience. Rather, she says, the kingdom of God is the present condition of hope inaugurated by Jesus and equipping right relations between self and self, between self and others, and between self and God. Which is to say, friends, and this is important theologically, God did not come to us in Jesus only for the purpose of getting people into heaven. Rather, God came to us in Jesus in order to help human beings to incarnate and to realize the politics of heaven, the priorities of heaven in their daily living. The kingdom of God is right now. That's a political statement. Throughout his ministry, Jesus made it a priority to illuminate or interpret the kingdom of God uh, with creativity and with variety. Think about some of the ways, if you have studied the New Testament, think about some of the ways in which Jesus does that. Jesus illuminates the kingdom of God or interprets the kingdom of God through his healing ministry, making clear that the politics of God, if I might put it that way, the politics of God prioritize the health and the wholeness of all persons. Jesus interpreted the kingdom of God through his relationships and through his connections, making clear that the politics of God were grounded in this weird, expansive, transformational love that could not be contained or compartmentalized. And yes, Jesus interpreted the kingdom of God in his stories, his parables, which became for Jesus one of his primary pedagogical techniques or methodologies, parables. That word parable comes from two Greek words that when we bring them together calls to mind the process of placing one thing beside another thing for comparison. And in his parables, Jesus places the kingdom of God beside a number of earthly circumstances, presumably for the purpose of helping his hearers to think theologically about the character of God's reign the nature of this political reality that we call the kingdom of God. And oftentimes, Jesus' parables were longer stories. I would suspect that you know some of those. But in the scripture that we heard this morning from Matthew's gospel, Jesus goes rapid fire on his parables, offering this series of short, strange parables each of which is a creative illumination of the often countercultural politics of the kingdom of God that Jesus himself saw himself as inaugurating. Here's the first parable that we heard in Scripture today. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds, but becomes the greatest of trees, which is poetic exaggeration, by the way, because 
I'm no gardener, but I'm told that the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds, and the mustard tree is far from being the greatest of all trees. And Jesus would have known that. Jesus would have known that. It's as though he is utilizing poetic exaggeration for the purpose of intensifying his point. And what is his point? Perhaps, perhaps his point is that the politics of God produce an exaggerated harvest, a ridiculously expansive yield when they are planted in the fertile soil of individual lives and communities. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And while people are processing the strange imagery of that, Jesus hits them with a second parable. The kingdom of God is like a small amount of yeast that when mixed with a larger portion of flour, eventually produces hearty bread. Could it be? Could it be that Jesus is making the point that the politics of God actually have the capacity to transform the ordinary grain of everyday circumstances into something more flavorful, into something more robust, into something more nourishing for this world? Then a third and a fourth parable in this moment of teaching. The kingdom of God is like a treasure buried in a field that inspires a person to go and sell everything else simply to purchase the field where the treasure is buried. And the kingdom of God is like a merchant searching for pearls. And this merchant goes and sells everything simply to buy this one pearl of great price. <sighs> Treasures? Pearls? People selling everything that they have? Could Jesus be making the point that the politics of God are always worth seeking after, always worth searching for, even when they are hidden, even when they are buried, even when they are difficult to find, and sometimes they may demand, these politics of God, an extreme sacrifice if they are going to be fully embraced. And then a final parable in this moment of teaching. The kingdom of heaven is like a wide net that is cast into the ocean and it catches all these different kinds of fish that only the angels of heaven are qualified to organize and separate. Only the angels of heaven. Oh. In this world of ours that seems to love categorizing people and compartmentalizing people and forcing people to remain in their particular net? Do you sense the urgency of this story? Could Jesus be making the point that the politics of God usher into this world a different kind of reality? A reality that is far less about division and more about invitation. Far less about rejection and much more about hospitality far less about sitting around trying to determine who's in and who's out, and far more about recognizing together that all of us are in the same net of grace together, whether we want to be there or not. Under this Roman government that has become harsh, Jesus essentially says, 
And let's modernize that. Under any government that mistreats its citizens or ignores the most vulnerable souls, I am inaugurating a new kingdom. It's a kingdom that generates harvests like a mustard seed, exaggerated harvests. It's a kingdom that generates nourishment like a little bit of yeast added to flour. It's a kingdom that inspires sacrifice like a buried treasure or a pearl of great price. And yes, it is a kingdom that inspires a non-discriminatory spirit of community in which hatred no longer makes any sense whatsoever. This is the kingdom that I'm inaugurating, Jesus says. This is the kingdom that I'm illuminating with these parables. This is the character of God's reign, and these are the politics by which this kingdom that I'm inaugurating functions. And I ask you to consider with me this morning, what might those politics, what, what might those politics look like in a life of discipleship? Perhaps they look something like this. She was 86 years of age, a woman from the South, now living in a small apartment on Pittsburgh's north side. And I had the honor of serving as her pastor. And every couple of months or so, I would make my way to her apartment and we would celebrate the Lord's Supper together in her living room. She was smart frail, ornery, prayerful, quick to laugh, and mostly homebound. Her eccentricities were intense, none more so than her penchant for chewing snuff, a habit that she had picked up as a teenager working in the garden in the South and had never abandoned. And I will simply say to you, friends, that if you have not had the experience of seeing an 86-year-old woman chewing snuff, then um, drop to your knees and thank God because it was, for me, a traumatic experience. And I don't want to make it about her age. It really wasn't about her age, but it had more to do with the fact that she insisted on using one of her beautiful antique teacups as the chosen receptacle for her snuff-inspired expulsions. And so as she was spitting into this teacup, muscle memory would always inspire her, to, no joke, muscle memory would always inspire her to extend her pinky because, you know, <laughs> etiquette is always important, I guess, is the moral of that story. But I'm sharing all of that with you to provide some context for a conversation that I'm about to describe. That was the context. And I loved my conversations with her. I miss her. I miss her. She was relentlessly introspective. But when I first met her, she was reluctant to talk about her upbringing. I remember the day when I found out why. I made my way to her apartment so that we might celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and when I walked into the living room on that day, I noticed that she had on the coffee table an old family photo album. It looked as though she had been pouring through the pages. 
Eric, she said to me that day, you asked me the last time that you were here a couple of months ago about my father, and I told you that it was very difficult for me to talk about my father, and then I quickly changed the subject. Did not mean to be rude. Today, I'd like to help you to understand why it's difficult for me to talk about my father. Okay? And with that, she pulled out of the photo album a small black and white photograph of her father, and she looked at it for a while. She looked at me. And she said, I'm going to show you this photograph, but I need for you to understand, I keep this photograph only to remind myself of the history from which I come. And she showed me the photograph of her father, and as I looked at it, I realized that her father, in this black and white photo, was adorned in the traditional garb of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah she said, uh, sick as it makes me to say it. My daddy was big in the clan. His heart was hard and cold to pretty much everybody who was different. Everybody. And I was stunned and we entered into this time of conversation, lengthy time of conversation, lost track of time, talking about what it meant for her to be raised in that kind of environment. And all that I could think about in this conversation, and one of the many things that I loved about her was her passion, and that's not too strong of a word, her passion for speaking out against anything that seemed racist or hateful. And that was a passion that had revealed itself over and over and over again in our many conversations. And so I asked her, I risked a question in the midst of this conversation, can you tell me, how do you think you avoided inheriting your father's hatred? And only then in our conversation did tears begin to fill her eyes as though the remembrance of her personal pilgrimage brought to mind a thousand tender stories. I avoided the hatred, she said, because I could never square, I could never square daddy's sentiments with the way of Jesus, not the Jesus I was learning about in church, in Sunday school, every Sunday. Didn't make any sense to me. I couldn't make sense of the hatred. It hurt me even to think about it. It hurt me to know that he was connected to that. And so I tried my best to honor him because he was my father, but I rejected at the same time everything that he stood for. And he knew that, and I think as I got older, it inspired him to hate me a little bit too. And after, after high school, she said, I met my husband, and she paused, and she said, oh, my husband was such a wonderful man, such a good man. And she said it in a way that made me to understand how much she missed him. We moved to a different place, we settled down, we became a family together, and we became connected to this small Methodist church full of good souls, good souls, who seemed to be over the moon about Jesus. And what's more, she said, they seemed to be determined, absolutely determined to prevent anything like racism from having sufficient air to breathe in that sanctuary or in those pews or in the hallway of that old building. And then she quickly added this, it was as though the people of that little Methodist church 
were citizens of an alternative kingdom. I prayed, she said, that my daddy would find his way into that kingdom every day until the day he died. Doesn't that take you back to the words of a senior high youth president? The kingdom of God is not something that people have to die to experience. It is right now because it happens whenever people take Jesus seriously enough that his politics become a real thing. People of, those, of that little church seem like they were citizens of an alternative kingdom. And I would suggest to you today, friends, that it is that alternative kingdom that Jesus illuminates with his parables, including the parables that we encounter in this morning's scripture from Matthew's gospel. He's illuminating an alternative kingdom. A kingdom that generates harvest like a mustard seed. A kingdom, in fact, that begins with the small mustard seed of an individual heart but soon grows into the expansive shrubbery of an entire congregation. A kingdom that might begin with the small yeast of standing against one father's hatred, but then eventually, over time, becomes the hearty bread of widespread racial justice. A kingdom that might inspire significant sacrifice like a treasure or a pearl of great price, absolutely, but also a kingdom, also a kingdom that begins to feel like a wide net of grace into which all human beings are gathered together without hatred, without discrimination, in a way that we can leave to the angels to sort out. This is the kingdom that I am inaugurating, Jesus says through his parables. And these are the politics by which that kingdom functions. And I'm convinced of this, friends, the more we align ourselves with these politics, the politics of this alternative kingdom, the more we align ourselves with these politics, the more rhetoric gives way to righteousness and the more posturing gives way to the authentic pursuit of justice. And the more that small seeds of hope and prayer become the great trees of transformed lives and communities. I am far from a great political thinker. But if you want to talk about those politics, I will talk about those politics, the politics of this alternative kingdom. I will talk about those politics any day of the week. And in fact, twice on Sunday. Amen.